Hello, I'm Stevie Nicks and welcome to In My Life, the podcast where we get to learn a little bit more about our favourite artists from someone who should know. No, not me, them. All artists have to go on the record at some point. It's called publicity and it comes with the territory. But that's not to say that all artists happily and readily engage, even when it appears that they are. Bob Dylan, for example, will sit down for an interview when Judy calls, but that doesn't mean he has to play along. Actually, that's not quite right. Dylan does play along, as in he plays us. He fabricates things and passes them off as fact. It's entertaining, but you always walk away none the wiser, which is exactly what he wants. Believe a word that he says, and, well, you have been played. But not all artists are like this. David Bowie, for example, was an artist who was very forthcoming in interviews. He was very giving. In fact, he was one of the most articulate, generous and candid interviewees that ever had a microphone placed in front of him. When he went on the record, he was under oath. He told you the truth. His truth over and over again as it happens. He didn't duck and dive or lead you astray. He simply answered all questions honestly and expansively. He treated the interviewer, and by extension us, with respect. Because that's what interviews are. They are a dialogue with an artist's audience. Some artists, again Dylan is a perfect example, believe that their art is all that matters. It can and does speak for itself. It is there to be interpreted, not explained. And to be fair, that is as it should be. But does an artist owe us more? Do we deserve to know a little bit more about the person behind the music? The person for whom we fork out our money to buy or stream their music and every now and again go and watch them perform? What drives them? inspires them? What do they believe in or not believe in? What are their politics? Do we have a right to know? Well, I don't know, but we do have a right to ask. After that, well, it's up to each artist to determine how they want to fill in the blanks. But back to Bowie, because that's who we're going to deal with today. David Bowie was an enigma, and yet he wasn't. Most artists of his stature wound back their publicity as their profile grew, but not Bowie. When an album came out or a tour was announced, he always, always hit the circuit. It's called professionalism, and he was a capital P professional. So Bowie would go on the record often and answer any question put to him. Ziggy, drugs, Ziggy, androgyny, did we say Ziggy? Bowie would go on the record and give of himself. He wouldn't explain his songs, but he would explain him, Bowie, as best he could. Take this interview on British television in 1999. He's just been asked if he thinks of himself as David Bowie or David Jones, the name he was given at birth. And here's what he had to say. Oh, and if you are never sure how to pronounce his surname, Bowie or Bowie... Well, he answers that riddle too. Less and less as as Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. (laughs) How are we? I don't even know how to pronounce it anymore. I've lost track. Uh, I always thought it was Bowie. I thought, well, it's a Scottish name, must be Bowie. But nobody in Scotland pronounces it like that. Pronounce it Bowie. A lot of what I am is is my uh, uh, my my enthusiasms. 
that I've always been uh, a very curious and enthusiastic person, again, as says, from when I was a teenager, and that it really wasn't up to me to try and identify exactly what that meant. I just had to accept that I was a person that had a very short attention span, would move from one thing to another quite rapidly uh, when I got bored with the other. Um, and uh, I became comfortable with that and didn't try and identify myself or try and ask myself who I was. The less questioning I did about myself uh, as to who I was, the more comfortable I felt. But so it, now I have absolutely no knowledge of who I am, but I'm extremely happy. David Jones was born on January 8, 1947, in a town called Brixton in London South. His father, who was christened Haywood, but went by the name John, was a promotions officer for a children's charity. He died of pneumonia in 1969, just a month after his son had skyrocketed into our consciousness on the back of Space Oddity. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grade. And the papers want to know who's shirt you wear. Now it's time to leave the capsule if you dare. This is Major Tom to ground. I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in the most peculiar way And the stars look very different Here's what Bowie had to say about his father on Dutch television in 1996. Um, physically, yeah, well, yeah, I think I'm pretty much... Oh, I guess uh, uh, amalgam between my mother and my father, and, and like both, I suppose, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't thought about it, really. What sort of a man was he? A, a, the typical polite English gentleman? Yes, I think he probably was. He, uh, he was a very decent man. Um, I think if uh, I inherited anything from him at all, uh, and is that it, he, he made it very clear that my choices were mine uh, as of a certain age, uh, uh, and that whatever gave me... He, was ne- he never pressed me into uh, thinking of financial stability as being something to particularly strive for. That it, for me, it was uh, a much more a case of what is it that you really feel will make each and every day something to look back on and say, that was really good. Was he that you know? kind of man for himself as well? Yes, he was, yeah. Was he a successful yeah. man? Um, yes, he was a successful man. Uh, financially, no, not at all. But as a person, he was... Uh, he worked for a, a, children, a charity in England called Dr Bernardo's, Dr. Bernardo's Homes. Um, and uh, that's something that gave him uh, terrific satisfaction. Would you call him an outsider in his days? No. no? Bowie's mother, Margaret, or Peggy as she was known, was a waitress before settling down to raise her children. But she and David were never close. But don't take my word for it. 
Here's Bowie on The Dick Cavett Show in 1974. What do your parents do for a living? Well, my father's dead and my mother um, has a, a small flat. And uh, I think she's got a day job. Does she have trouble explaining you to the neighbours who say, uh, are you any relation to that? Oh, I think she pretends I'm not hers. <laughs> she's, uh, no, she's, uh, she doesn't talk much. You know, she doesn't... Um, I don't think we really... We were never that close, particularly. Yeah. We have an understanding. Yeah. Mother, you had me, but I never had you. I, I wanted you, but you didn't want me. Just gotta tell you Goodbye Goodbye Bowie grew up in a bleak, battle-scarred post-war London, or as he referred to it in 2002, a terrible, tragic-looking wasteland. London was just this terrible, um, tragic-looking wasteland. Uh, Good desolation images for later yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it probably did influence a, a bit of the writing in that way. It's interesting, you know, when I, went, when I first went back to have a look at the uh, World Trade Center area, that was the one thing that, that struck me about it, is that um, I thought, oh, my God, it looks like London East End, you know, when I was a kid. That's what it looked like when I was about seven. Then it brought it all back, what London was like at that particular time. And it was grey and it was, uh, it, it was a pretty poor place in, in those days. But could such a barren place be ripe pickings for a fertile childhood mind? Indeed, could it be argued that London's lack of physical stimuli forced that young David Jones to retreat into his head and invent a parallel reality? Well, I say it can... And therefore, I argue that his drab surroundings and chromatic upbringing played a considerable part in allowing David Jones to morph into the kaleidoscopic artist who came to be known as David Bowie. Anyway, that was all still to happen. When I live my dream, I'll take you with me Riding on a golden horse We'll live within my castle With people there to serve you Happy at the sound of your voice Maybe I'll slay a dragon for you Or banish wicked giants from the land but you will find that nothing in my dream can hurt you We will only love each other as forever when I live my dream The Joneses moved to Bromley in Kent in 1955 when David was eight and he went to the Burnt As Junior School. By his own admission, the admission he made to Cavett, he was not, quote, academic. 
He was what his teachers called arty. Um, as I say, not very academic. I'm pretty, yeah. I suppose I was considered uh, arty. Arty? Yeah. But did, did you go through college or to college? Or? Oh, yeah, or? I went to um, um, a, a technical college near London um, that had a, an art course for people from 12 upwards who couldn't do anything else much, like maths or physics. Or something. Yeah. So I took art. All right. Mm. You know that Jagger studied economics. Yes. And yeah. uh, I mentioned that once when he was on, and some of his fans were disappointed to hear that. And um, he was the London School of Economics. Yes. And it ties into something you said in an interview you did with William Burroughs, which I thought was interesting, if it's, if it's in fact true. Uh, oh, don't believe it. Well, <laughs> everything ties in with something else you said, which is, every, don't ask me any questions because I'll say something different every time. Mm-hmm. But, but taking a chance here, taking a stab in the light, um, you, uh, you said that the lives of the rock stars are really not as strange as the lives of the fans. And that the fans... Actually, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting point, that the fans sort of envy the stars, but in, a, in effect, the stars live more <laughs> conventional lives and envy the fans. And it strikes me as odd, the idea that, you know, fans are out shoving, uh, I don't know, nutmeg under their cuticles or something yeah. and trying to be really freaky. And... Uh, <laughs> You and, uh, you and Jagger are sitting around discussing economics before the Anschluss and the Benelux nations or something. Uh, is it, am I exaggerating? No, this? he speaks economics and I don't understand him. <laughs> Bowie's first love was painting, but music eventually muscled its way into his orbit courtesy of Little Richard. Here's Bowie on British television in 1979. No, no, no. I wanted to be some kind of artist. Um, I wanted to prove myself in some field as an artist. And I didn't think I was a very good painter, so I went to music. You've had tremendous publicity. And Australian television in 2002. When I heard Little Richard, I mean, it just just set my world on fire. I thought, wow, this is... What's this got to do with me or London? Or But I want a piece of that. That's really fantastic. And uh, I saw the sax line-up that he had behind him. And I thought, I'm going to learn the saxophone, and when I grow up, I'm going to play in his band. <laughs> so um, I sort of persuaded my dad to get me a, a kind of a plastic saxophone and the, the higher purchase plan, you know, sort of those higher purchase mm. plans he had in those days. HP. HP, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, about, what, three bob a week or something for a saxophone. Um, and really, that sort of was, was really my start into That music. was a great investment that you It was, made. yeah, it was. Good old dad. And here he is three years earlier on the BBC. I, I wanted to be a musician because it seemed, um, it seemed rebellious, it seemed subversive. It felt like uh, one could affect change um, to a form. It, uh, it was very hard to hear music when I was younger, you know. Um, when, I, when I was really young, you had to tune into AFN radio to hear the American mm. records. Uh, there, there was no MTV and there was no, it wasn't sort of wall-to-wall blanket mm. music. And so, therefore, it had a kind of a, a call to arms kind of feeling to it. Is that this is the thing that will change things? This is uh, a dead, dodgy occupation to have. It still oh, produced signs of horror from people. If you said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm in rock and roll," it was my goodness. Now it's a career opportunity, and the internet is now uh, uh, carries the flag of, of being subversive and possibly rebellious. And chaotic Nine years earlier, Bowie was on French television promoting black tie, white noise, and he elaborated on his black music influences. Uh, um, a town in South London called Brixton, 
There was a, a lot of music at that time called Blue Beat and Scar. It was mainly Caribbean music. But uh, I think the, the first time that black music really made a, a sort of a real uh, major difference in, in what I was listening to was when I was about eight and uh, somebody bought me some Little Richard records. And that was it. I was really hooked on American rhythm and blues at that time. Then when I went back into blues and like John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters and Et Al. And then uh, I, I just, I, I've always, uh, I've just been always very drawn to American black music. Because uh, you think also because of the, the attitude, because it's always been a music very, uh, that goes with a certain lifestyle that's got a certain flamboyance. No, the lifestyle, no, it was never really part of it. No, I just, it just, uh, it was great music. That's all. But it doesn't rule out other kinds of music. I mean, I think I'm pretty Catholic in my taste. I mean, I also like Vaughan Williams and Elga. So, you know, it's... Uh, I like music. <laughs> so come the end of school, David Jones had a decision to make. Painting or music? We all know what he settled on, but here's why. This is Bowie in 1990 on Holland's Countdown. When I was a younger guy and I had the option to be either a musician or a painter. When I was thinking about being a painter, it never occurred to me that I was going to want to be a painter to make a big killing, you know, and make a lot of money because that wasn't what was happening then. I mean, the, the whole idea about painting being a career opportunity just wasn't there. And that seems to have happened over the last 10, 15 years. And it's happened to rock far more as well. Whereas once upon a time, you you, you really moved into rock because the whole idea of it was exciting. There were girls, there was, you know, a lot of fun times and you could make some statements about something or other. And you think of something or other to make a statement about. But now guys very approach it very seriously as a career opportunity. You know, it's as serious as banking these days or something for a lot of kids, you know. It's a whole different, whole different program. You think it That was Art Decade, track two, side two of 1977's Low. Now Bowie's love of black music personified itself on his ninth album, 1975's Young Americans, arguably his most out-and-out joyous album. Other records had their radiant highs, Hunky Dory's Oh You Pretty Things, for example. But no complete album was such a sonic, effervescent high. Here's Bowie in 1995 on America's MTV. I think it would be extremely pompous for any rock artist to say that black music probably wasn't the uh, mattress from where all other forms of popular music spring from. And, and I, I indeed felt this, uh, the effervescence of American black music was something that always uh, 
one of the few things that musically really cheered me up. Um, and I was really caught up with the James Brown soul explosion in the uh, clubs in the late 60s in London, early 70s. And even though I was working in a very sort of white area with Ziggy and his variation on rock, uh, it never left me and my interest in black music never died. And once I got to being in America an awful lot, which happened around, I guess, the end of 73 into 74, um, I, just, I just found that I was just more and more in black music areas. I was in Philadelphia a lot. We were recording in there. A lot of my friends, when I came over firstly to America, uh, were black or Hispanic. And I was going, the first place that I went to when I came to New York, a place like the Cheetah and the Leopard and Club and uh, uh, the Apollo, um, which for me was kind of just such a gas. It was so, it was so cool because I was sort of this red-headed clown alien in most outrageous suits and generally one of the few white guys in the audience at the Apollo. And it was almost that it was my past of being sort of allowed to be there, which was very presumptuous on my part, of course. But I was very young, very naive. Um, that, that, and everybody was so friendly and I knew what I looked like and I thought, what on earth could they think was interesting about me? I'm sitting here watching the spinners and I'm going out of my mind because this is like, oh, I'd only heard it on record and they're kind of like, asking me where my suits were made. <laughs> I thought, well, this is cool. If this is reciprocal, yeah, I dig this. This is great. And I had such a great time. We'll go into more detail about Young Americans next week and hear about John Lennon, the single Fame, and how it inspired James Brown. For now, we need to stick with the timeline. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Now, before we got sidetracked, we were hearing why Bowie decided to forge a career in music. That was the why. But how about the how? How was Bowie going to do it? What sort of songs was he going to write? Well, here he is in 2004 on Australian television answering that very question. When I was around 17, 18, what I wanted to do more than anything else was write something for Broadway. I wanted to write a musical. I had no idea of how you did it or how musicals were constructed, but the idea of writing something that was rock-based for Broadway really intrigued me. I thought that would be a wonderful thing to do. And I saw myself as somebody who would kind of end up writing musicals in a way probably rock musicals of some nature. But it never actually became that. So they were, in a little, in a, in a way, they were, th those ideas were kind of quashed a little bit when I realised how, what a huge am ambitious thing that was to take on, you know, because you have to write dialogue and all that. And, uh, There's a lot of, lot and of... I really didn't know how to approach that. So I took a far, far simpler course and kind of abbreviated the idea of musical into just a concept piece for an album and cr created the characters to go with the different albums. And in the process of doing that, I found that I was actually playing around with the music that I was writing more and more. So it really was, uh, it was character-driven that actually started to interfere with the music in, its, in, a, in a good way. And my interest eventually 
became just the music itself. So it's like it's almost like I left a lot of the, the theatrical ambitions behind when I really got involved in the music itself. I mean, and his love of musicals and wanting to write those kind of songs really came to the fore on his sixth album, 1973's Aladdin Sane. Track one, side two especially, Time. Time, he's waiting in the wings He speaks of senseless things His script is you and me Time, he flexes like a whore Falls wanking to the floor His trick is you and me Boy Time, in quaaludes and red wine Demanding Billy Dolls And other friends of mine Take your time The sniper is So Bowie had the ambition, he had the vision, now all he needed to do was piece it all together. It might have taken him a couple of albums, but he eventually got there, and when he did, well, the earth turned on its axis. What Bowie did was unconventional and unique. Put those two adjectives together in a sentence and you usually describe a fringe artist. But Bowie was, or more precisely Ziggy was, the centre stage not the fringe. And to be centre stage, you needed talent. Yes, but also craft, stagecraft. Here's Bowie in 1987, again on MTV, explaining how he combined his love of theatre and mime into his act, and in doing so, exceeded even his wildest ambitions. Uh, Well, I I mean, uh, when I was about, uh, from 18, 17, 18 years onwards, I knew that I I wanted to do something on stage, and it it involved music, but it also involved theatre somehow. I'm never quite sure what it was until I started working on the Ziggy kind of thing, but I knew it was something to do with amalgamating theatre and rock in a way that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd just only seen, like, daft things like hair, and it it didn't... but it wasn't quite what I envisaged and it had more to do with this kind of surrealistic thing and I guess Ziggy was like sort of trying the water out it was in the first attempt and even now I haven't got to where I always sort of thought it would be but 
possibly with a tour coming up, that I might be sort of putting together something which gets really near to what I first saw about 15, 18, 20 years ago uh, <laughs> in terms of amalgamating theatre and rock, but not have it turn out like something that would be on Broadway or whatever. You know. mm -hmm. I, the late 60s were, were great for people like me because it was the era of, of multimedia shows, you know. There was things like the Living Theatre coming over to Britain and Bread and Puppet Theatre and Experimental Theatre at the, the uh, Roundhouse and Stephen Burkhoff and great music going on. And, uh, and, uh, and London was full of meme companies, mime companies. The best of which was a, a group of uh, uh, mimes called the Lindsay Camp Company, who were very fundamental in teaching me. I joined them. I offered them to write their music if they would teach me mime, so it was reciprocal, you know. I'm into the barter system. And they taught me uh, quite a bit about stage work, stage craft, how lighting worked, how you could use your body on stage and make a dramatic statement without having to use a prop. And so, because up until that point, one always sort of thought that theatre was about props and things, when I mean, it's not at all. I mean, I hopefully could do any of the shows that I have done without any of the scenery or props that I've used, because a lot of it was body work, how, body language, how the body moves, and, and, and what statements it can make on stage. And I kind of got all that from the Lindsay Ken Company. And um, it was an exciting period in England for that, the late 60s. Uh, they really were stretching out. They were really trying to find out what you could do mm -hmm. on stage. And I just continued that through the 70s when a lot of other bands maybe didn't. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Ziggy just before, and as I said earlier, he would come to dominate Bowie's interviews. Now, we'll go into more detail on Ziggy in a minute, but for now, I want to stay in this period. And we're talking 1971 Hunky Dory, 72 Ziggy Stardust. Bowie launched himself in 1969 on the back of Space Oddity, but he then disappeared from the charts. By 1971, it appeared that he might be confined to what was already a healthy list of artists who would forever be defined as one-hit wonders. His follow-up album, 1970's The Man Who Sold the World, made it to 24 on the UK chart, which was okay, but in the US it didn't crack the top 100, which was not okay. Significantly, the record company did not see any singles among its nine tracks, so that was never going to help sales. That said, the album did contain this gem. I have no idea why that never became a single. 
Anyway, Hunky Dory, which came out in December 1971, originally spawned just one single, Changes. Now, Changes was a good song, but it didn't change the perception that Bowie wasn't a singles artist. It didn't break into the top 40 anywhere. Interestingly, there was a song with hit written all over it, and I'll get to it in a second. But first I want to double down on track two, side two. A song about, well, I'll let Bowie tell you. It's, it's Warhol, actually. What did I say? Hole. It's hole. As in holes. Andy Warhol was, and still is to a great extent, a mystery. But Bowie was part of the Warholian clique at that time, so he was able to shed some light on the man under the wig in 1997 on US television. I think that he was actually a very nice guy. I never found him anything other than polite, uh, insecure, quite vulnerable, uh, bitchy, in the nicest possible way. Very funny. And a little bit in awe of his own reputation. I never felt that he had the kind of confidence that so many others would have you believe. I never saw him as the man of steel and this kind of hard-nosed manipulator. I think anybody who does well in their craft pretty much keeps on course and knows what they want and does, thing, and, and, and does things in a particular manner. And he probably did that as much as any of us did. But I don't ever, I didn't feel that he was quite as assured about what it was he was doing or why he was actually as big as he was. I don't, I'm sure that he ever really understood why. Anyway, back to that song buried among the other tracks on Hunky Dory. The song in question was included at the record company's insistence when, again, they didn't see a single on the original album handed into them for approval. So they demanded that Bowie go away and come back with something commercial. Suitably chastened, he returned with Life on Mars. You may have heard of it. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go but her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to fall Oh, 
Inexplicably, the record company sat on that song for 12 months and didn't put it out as a single until Ziggy emerged and the world was going gaga for Bowie. Now, Ziggy Stardust, the album, was a phenomenon. It was a concept album and in keeping with Bowie's ambition to write musicals. And the single that made it all happen was Starman. Top of the Pops dressed in red, blue and gold and hugged his guitarist Mick Ronson, well the world would never be the same again. No one knew what to make of it. They just knew that they had to make something of it. Anyway, the point of all this rambling is to say that Bowie was now a performer. He wasn't just a singer-songwriter. He was an artist who had mastered the art of projecting. And artists like that always capture our attention. It seems simple enough, but if it was, well, everyone would do it. Here's Bowie in 1974, again on Cavett, talking about bridging the divide between songwriting and performing. I'm a storyteller and a story writer, and uh, I decided that I preferred to enact a lot of the material I was writing rather than perform it as myself. At this moment, I'm performing as myself, but I will continue in the future after I've done what I wish to do at the moment, return back to writing stories and I will yep. enact them again and I don't care what anybody says, I like doing it and it's what I shall continue to do. Well, I'm not stopping. No, I just, I, you know, it's not, and nothing that I do is, is, uh, is on any kind of intellectual slant. you got no mission. No, it's just... Uh, yeah. Oh. And the way Bowie bridged that divide was to create characters. Ziggy was the first, but he would not be the last. Here's what he had to say on British television in 1979 when he was asked if he used himself as a creative canvas. I, I never wanted to appear as myself on stage ever at any time until recently, I think. So I, um, as I did writing character form, I 
wanted to produce those characters on stage, which is something I feel I did quite successfully at the time. That was simply an exercise of projecting something else. Like you say, for instance, you would be presenting a picture. Well, I was also, I wanted to use rock and roll in some uh, way or other, and uh, I got tired of the, the sort of, the lie of the rock performer is exactly the same on stage as he is off stage, which in mm. most cases isn't true at all. But so I thought, well, take it a stage further and completely separate the personalities, the person behind it all who's writing it and creating it, and the one up front that does the interviews and does the shows and and so I created the characters and put them on stage and then I would take them further and put them into interviews and I would only do interviews as the character. Were you hiding uh, yourself from us? Partly, but I was enjoying it very much. I mean, I like the idea of taking it to that sort of surreal stage. And here he is in the same year on another British program. When I started writing songs, nobody would record them, so I had to do them myself. And I didn't being a Capricorn, I didn't want to expose myself to the public, so I developed a series of characters which fell in line with the material that I was writing. So behind that all the time was a real David Bowie? At times, yes. I lost control a couple of mm. times. But... So did the roles that you played on stage then kind of take you over sometimes yes. in private life? Yes. What about all those... And here he is again in 1990 being asked the very same question. Well, twofold. One was the fact that I didn't particularly feel comfortable performing as a, a straight-ahead singer on stage. And my interest had always been in, one of a better word, multimedia-type situations. I liked the idea of combining theatre and music and um, the whole atmosphere and creating an atmosphere for stage. I thought it was terribly important. It was to me, anyway. It's what I wanted to do. So it then became necessary to devise characters to sing the songs of these little stories that I was writing. So it was really a, very much the first three or four albums that came out of that period were um, theatrical undertakings with music. But then I started to quite like singing them on my own, so I had to get rid of them. <laughs> Six years later, in 1996, a Dutch interviewer moved the subject onto mental health, a subject that Bowie was very familiar with given that his brother Terry suffered from schizophrenia and lived in a mental hospital. Here's a bit of that exchange. Still, I don't get it. If, if you were overly concerned because of, of, of mental disorders appearing somewhere in the family, mm. th- there's this one thing that I don't understand. Why on earth, if you're so concerned about it, do you go on stage and invent a lot of characters that you've played for months and months and months on stage and a lot of time, times off stage? Weren't you tempting the gods? I think that was pure shyness. You, in, in, at one, in one very serious interview, you said, whether I filled the characters with my life or filled my life with the characters, that's unclear to me. Yeah. So, it, so that's, to me, that shows that you really lost yourself somewhat in the, oh, those you, characters. Yes, I, I mean, that yes, is tempting the gods if you're well, concerned about really. lo- I mean, losing your insanity. One doesn't have the equipment at that age to know if you're tempting the gods or, or, or otherwise. I think that you just flow with what you feel is a very energetic life river of energy and excitement, you know, and uh, uh, I put myself in a situation where I really didn't know what the boundaries were and what the fine line was between my characters on stage and my, and my absolute uh, self. Um, and uh, and that's, that's something that really I never really came to terms with until the late 70s. And in the late 70s, I started to redefine 
exactly who I was by readjusting my life and taking myself out of a, a, a kind of a pretty fast lane existence. Did you, in a way, like and here's what he had to say again in 1979 about his songwriting. Um, thematically, I've, I've always dealt with isolation in mm. everything I've written, I think. Um, so it's something that triggers me off. It, it always makes me interested in a new project if it has anything to do with alienation or isolation. Do you feel isolated, though? Not really, but I can, I can quite imagine how it must feel to be isolated. So I have often put myself in... Um, circumstances and positions where I am isolated just so that I can write about it. And so that brings us to Ziggy, who would become a cultural phenomenon and place Bowie, who just 80 months earlier was virtually anonymous, at the centre of the cultural and entertainment world's attention. Ziggy was a figment of Bowie's fertile imagination, and I'll let him explain it. But before we hear from him, I just want to say that it's probably well and good that Ziggy was a character and not Bowie himself, because the hurricane that he caused would have proven too much for a lot of artists and tipped them over the edge. Dylan had to deal with it, as had Elvis and the Beatles, but not many others. Not even the Stones were subjected to this kind of scrutiny. Anyway, here's Ziggy. played guitar Jamming good with Wed and Gilly And the spiders from Mars They played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band Ziggy really sang Screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo like some cat from Japan He could lick them by smiling He could leave them to hang Became on so loaded man Well hung snow white tan Here's Bowie in 1977 on Canadian TV. I wanted, I wanted to define the archetype uh, Messiah rock star. That's all I wanted to do. And I used the trappings of kabuki theatre, mime technique, um, fringe New York music, like uh, my references were Velvet Underground, right. whatever. Suffragette City or... Uh, it had that, that, the that street, energy value. The I wanted street. that energy value, yeah. It was Even a British view street. of American en street energy. So Ziggy was, for me, a very simplistic thing. It was what it seemed to be, an alien rock star. And uh, for performance value, I dressed him and acted him out. I left it at that. But other people 
reread him and contributed more information about Ziggy than I had put into him. Right. They could write it, novels about that guy. Right. right. I think basically because of the uh, that I'd put three viewpoints into the album um, from uh, three different areas. Maybe the the character himself would appear, and then there would be two other statements by two other people, all on one album, which was kind of confusing. Oh, but very it was. I mean, it was. It was uh, the way an author would write a book. Yes. Rather, I mean, it hadn't been utilized that much in, in, in records. And I Forever. had trouble they, explaining they that they it was just, it was a they? theater piece, that the spiders didn't really exist, that they only existed for the length, the duration of that character's life. Right. I was stuck with him for a long time. It took a long time to shake him off after I'd finished working with him because people relate to him more than David Bowie at the time. Yeah. It was still very hard for anybody to realize that a rock artist can go on stage and be a different People person every time he goes on stage. They so do that nobody was doing that. Day, though. It need not be repetitive, right? And here he is 10 years later on America's PBS. It was sort of, yeah. Ziggy was. I mean, he was half out of sci-fi rock and half out of the Japanese theater. The clothes were, that time, simply outrageous and, and simply nobody had seen anything like them before. Was there a point where people didn't take your music seriously because you were... I think I moved out of Ziggy fast enough so as not to be caught by that one. Because most rock characters that one can create only have a short lifespan. They are one-shots, they are cartoony. And the Ziggy thing was worth about one or two albums before I couldn't really write anything else around him or the world that I sort of wanted to put together for him. And here he is in 1999 on the BBC. I think I was quite happy to buy into the idea of, of uh, reinvention up until uh, the uh, beginning of the 80s, really. And, and it came about, I think, more than anything else, that when I was a, a teenager, I had it in, in my mind that I would be a creator of musicals. I, I, I sincerely wanted to write musicals um, for the West End, for Broadway, whatever. I didn't see much further than that. Um, as a writer, and I really had the idea in my head that people would do my songs. Um, and I was not a natural performer. I didn't feel at ease on stage, ever. Um, and I had created this one character, Ziggy Stardust, that it seemed that I would be the one that would play him because nobody else was doing my songs and the chances of my actually getting a musical mounted were very slim. And so I became Ziggy Stardust for that period. Whatever, and things sort of led. I like I like the idea, and I, I felt really comfortable going on stage as somebody mm. else. And it seemed a, a a rational decision to keep on doing that. And so I got quite besotted with the idea of just creating character after character. Um, and I think probably there must have been a point in the late seventies, well I know there was, where I felt that the characters were in fact getting in the way of myself as a writer. And I endeavoured to kind of kill them off and, and start writing for me uh, as, as just a, a singer-songwriter. I'm not sure if I was ever successful in that, because I, I, I do take a degree of theatricality when I go on stage all the time. I, you know, sort of that's how I deal with the stage situation. I'm still not comfortable on stage. And here he is looking back on it all and trying to make sense of it in 1987. There was a real feeling of inadequacy in that area. I never really felt like a rock singer or rock star or whatever. And I always felt a little bit out of my element, which is uh, uh, a ridiculously highfalutin way of looking at it now from my standpoint when I look back 
and realized that from 72 through till about 76, I was the ultimate rock star. I couldn't have been more rock star. Records and the, uh, but the lifestyle and everything. everything. I mean, it's sort of you know anything that was going out there that had anything to do with it being a rock and roll singer. Then I was, I'd say, hey, let's go for this. See what it's like. I think the only time I get sort of you know kind of nostalgic about any of that stuff at all is if I see the odd video or some or or I, I see a bit of the Ziggy Stardust concerts or whatever. No, other than that, I, I don't think I'm cold about them. But I think it's work done. I think that's an actor's uh, attitude too. Uh, I think you have to, otherwise you start. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah, you get into a danger of, of of getting into the rut and and maybe try to perpetuate something that's gone before. A lot of people that I know are bugged with the idea that the they've got to have an audience, they've got to be liked, and uh, I think the more that you get fall into that trap, it makes your own life harder to come to terms with because. An audience appreciation is only going to be periodic at the best of times. You'll fall in and out of favour continually. I don't think it should be something one should be looking for. I think you should turn around at the end of the day and say, I really like that piece of work, or that piece of work sucked. Not, was that popular or wasn't it popular? And again in 1995 on MTV. It increasingly becomes difficult for me to remember back to what exactly were all the influences that went into the creation of that poor soul and his coterie. Uh, it had a lot to do with fascinations outside of rock and roll. Yet again, the idea of things outside of whatever genre I was in or my lifestyle or my society, it wasn't whatever I was close to was never enough. I wanted to know what the next thing was after that. What's on the outside of all this? And in rock music or in theater, the outside at that particular time, because it was still a very secretive kind of thing was kabuki theater in japan it was something we didn't really know anything about in the west and i, I remember the colors and the presentation the ritual of it all it seemed so uh, magical and replaced i think all the time those rituals have replaced my very very strong spiritual leanings i don't think I, I, i'm not a religious person but i'm a i am a spiritual person and i think not knowing what church to go to because none of them made sense to me in any real way my strivings to have some kind of spiritual base were really, really strong. All my life I've had a need for that. And I think I tried to amalgamate my own bedrock of spirituality. Something I could pin a reason for life onto by going outside to looking at ritual. And so Kabuki came into it, drag came into it. Um, uh, 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 Jack Kerouac on the road came into it for some obscure reason. Um, uh, uh. I remember seeing a film about high priests in Indonesia who were also in drag and then found out that most high priests outside of the Judeo-Christian ethic adopt some kind of female attire or sort of female um, or at least androgynous kind of makeup and that that was almost traditionally part of other cultures' religions and I found that fascinating. So. In my mind, there was something of the high priest to the Ziggy character as well. I tried to cram in every bloody piece of information that I had at my fingertips at that particular time to create this little religious base for myself. Probably that's what it was about. I don't know. Or in other words, I haven't got a clue. You went also from, you know, inventing... But I know, but I know what went into it. 
But I think that applies to any, any, any art form. I think most artists feel a lot happier discussing the process of what they do rather than what the hell it means. Well, you know, you went also... I know so many... I'm sorry, I got... I know so many painters who title their works after they've done them, which is a real giveaway. The name Ziggy Stardust, well, the surname at least, was pinched from a guy who called himself the legendary Stardust Cowboy, a guy you would never have heard of. And the reason is because he sang songs like this. I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft And I thought about you I passed through the shadow of Jupiter And I thought about you I shot my space gun Oh, I really felt blue Two or three flying saucers Parked under the stars A winding stream Moon shining down On some little town And with each beam A same old dream I took a trip In a Jiminy spacecraft And I thought about you I'll let Bowie tell the rest of the story. Here he is in 2002, and take a listen at how good he is at impressions. You could say his impressions are impressive. The last song that I chose to sing that wasn't mine was by the legendary Stardust Cowboy, who was a stable mate of mine in 1968-69 on Mercury Records. One of the executives at Mercury took me one side and said, Psst, David. You like weird stuff, don't you? I said, yeah, I love weird stuff. He said, play these. <laughs> he gave me this bunch of three singles by this Mercury artist, the legendary Stardust Cowboy, that they really had no clue what to do with him. <laughs> it, was, it was the sort of the... God, talk about heathen. This sound was like the something emitting from the bowels of the earth. I mean, it was like nothing I'd heard before. I loved it. I thought the guy was a genius, a stone-cold genius. And it didn't surprise me at all when he went on laughing and everybody laughed at him. <laughs> the poor guy just shuffled off. Heartbroken. Uh, but it was, uh, it, was, it was a real pioneering sound. Um, I loved him so much I bought the company. I loved him so much that I nicked his last name for Ziggy Stardust. That's where Stardust came from. Years later, like last Thursday... Uh, I was on the internet and I got to his site. He's got a two-page site on the internet. And he says two things that... one. The first thing I thought was really funny. He said, My biggest regret is my father never lived to see my success. Which I thought was wonderful. And the second thing he said, which I thought was actually equally not funny for me, he said, That Englishman, David Bowie... Uh, he stole my name for his Ziggy Stardust character and I think he should do some songs of mine. He owes me. And I felt so guilty and I thought, yeah, I should. I really should. And here's the cover he was talking about. I took a trip on a Gemini spacecraft 
one of, if not the best cover he ever recorded, something that I went into on my previous podcast, Song Sung New. For those of you who haven't heard it, or heard of the episode, it's on season one, Song Sung New. Anyway, enough of the cross-promotion. By the time the clock ticked over to 1973, David Bowie was arguably the biggest star on the planet. Just 12 months earlier, and many people were questioning his commercial bona fides. Now they couldn't get enough of him. David Bowie would never be this big again, but his star was far from fading. Aladdin Sane was still to come, as was Pin Ups, Diamond Dogs, and of course, Young Americans. And that was just the mid-1970s. Anyway, we'll get into all of that next week, plus Berlin, Drugs the 1980s, Bowie's thoughts on his singing and songwriting, and his legacy. But that's next week. For now, let's finish up with a bit more Ziggy. Because too much is never enough. See you next week. Before the grave, a brave son who gave his life to save a slogan that hovers between the headstone and her eyes, for they penetrate her grieving. You love a boy and girl, the talking you. Only they can share in you A love so strong it tears their hearts to sleep Through the bleeding hours of morning A love is careless 